Good morning again, Calvary. Man, I love that song. That was, I feel like we should just end with that song, but we will not. We will continue in our worship. And some of you might be thinking that because Advent is over, we will jump back into our previous series, which we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we've called it Fix Our Eyes on Jesus. However, I like to keep you guys on your toes and keep you guessing, so we won't be doing that quite yet. And actually, that's not the real reason. The real reason is the next passage in Mark is one of Pastor Ben's favorites. And so he said, I could preach on it if I wanted to, but I thought I would just graciously let him have that opportunity when he gets back. So he will kick off our series back into Mark when he preaches next week. So that gives me the very unique opportunity of having the freedom to preach on anything I wanted to preach on. And so this is one of those moments when you get to realize if you made a good choice or not in hiring me as your resident. So it's your lucky day today because we are going to look at five steps to your best life now. Just kidding. We aren't going to do that. Instead, I thought I would share on something that God has used powerfully in my life and It's not an understatement to say that this has completely changed my life and transformed it. And for those folks I've had a chance to disciple and mentor, they know this kind of gushes forth from me, that it's really, it's changed me. And I, I really don't look at the Christian life the same way because of it. And what we'll be doing is we're going to look at a passage in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. And it's commonly called The parable of the prodigal son. And if you paid attention at the bulletin, you'll see that the title for the sermon is actually The Prodigal God. That's on purpose. One definition of the word prodigal is having or giving something on a lavish scale. And what we see in this parable, what we're going to see is that God lavishes his grace on sinners. God lavishes his grace on sinners. And grace is simply God's favor towards us. You could spend a lot more time talking about that and more nuance and greater depth, but just simply God's favor. That's what we mean by God's grace. And so, before I jump in, I need to give credit where credit is due. The way this changed me is I read a book in college called The Prodigal God by an author named Tim Keller. And if I had to reference to him every time I had some insight from him in this sermon, it would be a really long and wieldy sermon. So I'm just going to mention it up front and just assume a lot of this is coming from his book. So let's pray, and then we'll read through the parable, and we'll jump through this. Father, we thank you for your great grace. And we ask now that you would give us fresh grace to see afresh this story, this parable, and we ask that it would change us from the inside out, that our hearts would be changed, and that you would increase our joy in you, and that we would respond appropriately. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Let's start by just simply reading it. It's in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A major theme that runs through this parable is the theme of lostness. Being lost. In fact, if we read Earlier in this chapter, Jesus actually tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then our parable. And so we see this theme of lostness all through each parable. And it's that theme 
that will guide the sermon for today. And we're going to be asking three questions and answering those questions that relate to what it means to be lost. First, who is lost? Second, why are they lost? And third, what will bring them back? Who is lost? Why are they lost? What will bring them back? So first question, who is lost? Now, in a quick read of this story, you would think right away, rightly, that, well, obviously that younger brother is lost. You look at his life, you think he's obviously lost. Look at the way he's living. And that'd be right as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough because Jesus wants us to see that both brothers are lost. One reason we know this is when you look at who Jesus is telling this parable to. You find the answer to that back in verses 1 through 3. So look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Verse 1 in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then Jesus tells his three parables, climaxing in this one. And so what you need to see is that the two groups, or the two brothers in this parable, correspond to the audience. So on the one hand, you have the tax collectors and the sinners, and they correspond to the younger brother. And then on the other hand, you have the scribes and the Pharisees, and they correspond to the older brother in the parable. So remember that. So as the story goes on, we read about the younger brother and that he's lost. Right? He goes to his dad and he tells his dad, Dad, give me my share of the property, my inheritance. And what is absolutely shocking is that he would ask this because in essence he's wishing that his dad was dead. You only get your inheritance when your dad dies. But he's asking for it now. But what's even more shocking is how his dad responds. Instead of disowning his son on the spot and driving him away, he gives him the share of his inheritance, the property. And so then you know what happens next. The younger son takes all this money or property, whatever. He goes off to another country and he lives a crazy, wild life. And then a famine comes and he's destitute. He's lost. So we see that the younger brother is clearly lost, but the older brother is also lost. And as the story goes on, we begin to see that. So the younger son comes to his senses, right? He's in a literal pigsty, and he realizes, you know what? I'm going to go back to my dad, say I'm sorry, and maybe he'll hire me as a servant. And what he's thinking is, maybe I could possibly pay off this debt. Maybe I could do something to make up for what I've done. So he has his plan, and he decides to head home. So he heads home, and as he's coming home, his dad sees him. And what does the dad do? Is he sitting there, tapping his foot, grumbling? He's like, oh yeah, this better be good. He doesn't do that. He sees his son, and he runs to his son, and he embraces him. And the son tries to you know, have his spiel. He probably has a PowerPoint or something. He's like, here's my five-step plan. And his dad's like, I'm not going to have any of that. His dad brings him back, welcomes him as a son. He 
He's brought back into the family. And his dad is so happy, they celebrate. They throw a party. They have Pastor Ben come over and grill some meat or something. But they celebrate. Now, with the older brother, when he finds out about all of this, how does he respond? Right? He joyfully embraces his brother. No, he doesn't do that. He gets angry, very angry, and he refuses to go into the party. And the dad has to come out to him and plead with him to come back in. And so what we see at this point is that the older brother is also lost. And he's lost because the opposite of being lost is being found or knowing where you belong. And the brothers belong with their family. They belong with their dad. But the older brother is saying, if being with this family, if belonging with this family means I have to live with that guy, I'm not going in. He will not go into the party with his dad and with his brother. He's lost. Now, these two brothers, or these two groups of people, really describe two of the basic ways we try to approach life or maybe even relate to God. And on the one hand, the one way is what you could call self-discovery, the self-discovery approach. The other approach is moral conformity. The younger brother describes the self-discovery approach well, and the older brother describes moral conformity well. And Jesus is showing us again that both approaches are wrong, and both lead to emptiness. When it comes to self-discovery, we can often see this with celebrities. For instance, Tom Brady has discovered that he's pretty good at football, or at least was pretty good at football. And you would think he'd be very content and happy. And yet he's empty. In an interview, Tom Brady said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I think there's got to be more than this. So Tom has pursued his true authentic self and realized it's left wanting, that it's empty. And the younger brother has did the same thing. He took all the money he wanted. He did exactly what he wanted to do. He partied. He had a great time. And in the end, he ended up in a literal pigsty. He ended up empty and unfulfilled and unsatisfied. Now, the mistake would be to think, well, if that doesn't work, The right approach then is instead of breaking the rules, you better obey all the rules. But that's also wrong. And we see that with the older brother, the moral conformity approach. And a great example of this would be my own life. Growing up as a kid, I tried really hard to be a good kid. I tried to do everything my parents told me. I tried to you know do the right thing. I didn't go to parties or drink or do anything like that. I didn't date girls that did that. In fact, I just didn't date at all. I, that's how good I was, I guess. I'd, instead of going out and doing that stuff, I'd stay home. I'd do homework, I guess. And one of the amazing things is I was so good as a kid, my parents didn't have to give me a curfew. My older sister had a curfew. I did not have one because I just would always be home at, you know, eight or whatever it was. I just wasn't out doing anything. And you know what? I was empty. 
I was trying very hard to be very good, and it ended up becoming very empty. And I thought, almost exactly like Tom, that, man, there's got to be something more than this. So both brothers, both approaches to life are wrong and lead to emptiness. And now we're going to ask the question, well, why are they lost? Let's dig deeper. Why are both brothers lost? St. Augustine helps us answer this question. I'm going to paraphrase him. But what Augustine says is that we should love people and use things. But often we flip that around and get it wrong, and instead we choose to love things and use people. And the brothers in the story got this wrong, both brothers. For the younger brother, it's really obvious, right? He goes to his dad, and he wishes he was dead, and he says, give me my money now. Right? It's like that stupid commercial. It's my money, and I want it now, is what he says. And obviously, he doesn't care about his dad. He just cares about his dad's stuff. He loves the stuff, and he uses his dad. And some of you might have examples or instances of this in your own experience, where maybe you know somebody... Maybe it's a friend or just family member or family friend. And pardon the expression, but that person is just a leech on you or on the family. That they only come by every, you know, when they need something or want something. That's the only time you hear from them. And then when they get what they want, they leave. So it's not always as obvious as the younger brother, but we see this in life. Now, the older brother despite looking very different on the outside, is actually very similar to the younger brother when you dig deep. The older brother also just wants his dad's stuff and not his dad. Except for in his case, he's going to try to do it by obeying all the rules instead of breaking all the rules. For instance, look at verse 29 with me. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice how he's fixated on the stuff, on the things, on this goat. And what we find out is he doesn't really care about his father. He just cares about his dad's stuff. In essence, he's saying, Dad, I've obeyed you. I've never disobeyed you. So guess what? You owe me. I've been good. You owe me at least a goat, probably more. And because you aren't giving that to me, I'm not going in. He's angry. And that should shock us. Because the reason he doesn't go into the party, which I believe represents salvation, is because He's been so obedient. It's because he hasn't disobeyed. That's why he doesn't go in. He looks at his goodness. He's like, God, you owe me. And if you don't give this, well, forget that. I'm not going in. So to bring this together then, as I mentioned, these brothers look way different on the outside. If you were to look at my life in high school and look at my sister's life, they would have been radically different. And yet underneath, they're the same. In both cases, they just want God's stuff and not God himself. The only difference 
is how they go about getting that stuff, whether they break all the rules or obey all the rules. And for the older brother, there is a particular danger. And the danger is he is blind to the fact that he is lost. He's blind to his disobedience. The younger brother is very aware that he's doing all this bad stuff. But the older brother doesn't see it. And because of that danger, and because that's a danger that is especially rampant in the church, I want us to look at three signs that you and I, that we may have an older brother spirit or attitude. The first sign is there is an undercurrent of anger in an older brother's life. Look at verse 28. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. And they're angry because they've been so obedient. And they use their obedience as a way to control God. And if God doesn't give them what they want because they've been so good, they get angry. They're kind of like a taxpayer. They think, I have rights. I paid my taxes. You owe me. Government, give me what I want. And when they don't get what they want, they get angry. The second sign of an older brother's spirit or attitude is that they pridefully compare themselves to others. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, the older brother says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Notice how he looks down on his younger brother. He won't even acknowledge being in the same family as him. He says, but when this son of yours came, he looks down on his younger brother. He has this holier-than-thou mindset, this sense of superiority. And so they compare themselves to others. That He looks at his brother's life. His brother left the family and disobeyed. But dad, I stayed here and I obeyed. And I am better than him. So you really owe me. Finally, the third sign that you might have an older brother spirit is that you have a dry prayer life. A dry prayer life. And the reason for that is, if you have an older brother mindset, you're trying to control God by what you do in your obedience. And prayer is just another way of doing that. And so what this means is that your prayer tends to be described with lots of requests for God to do specific things. But what's missing is there's not very much adoration or praise or thanksgiving in your prayer. And that's because God is just a means to some other end. God is like a business partner. God, here's the five-point plan. You need to deliver on this. In business, it's not very affectionate or warm. It's, here are the facts, here's what I need. And so the older brother approach, God is like a business partner, instead of somebody that you would actually love and enjoy. In a love relationship, there is sort of natural and organic praise and love with each other. I think about my lovely wife, Kimberly, that I will spontaneously and say things like, I love you, you're beautiful, I enjoy you, because I love her. She's not a business partner. I don't come to her with, here are the five you know, project goals of the week, please deliver, bye. I love her. I married her because I want her. She's not a means to some other end. She's the end. In the same way, God is the end. But for an older brother, God just becomes some kind of cosmic vending machine to give him what he wants. Elizabeth Elliot, 
tells this apocryphal story about Jesus that captures the heart of an older brother well. And by apocryphal story, I mean this is not in the Bible, it's not scripture, but it's just an interesting, helpful story. So don't take it as scripture, you will not find it in your Bible, but if it's from Elizabeth Elliot, then it's probably helpful. So, she tells this story of Jesus. Jesus goes to his disciples, and he tells them, Please carry a stone for me. And so they pick up some stones. Peter, being very pragmatic, grabs a little stone, puts it in his pocket, and they follow Jesus. Around lunchtime, Jesus has them take out their stones, and he turns them into bread. And he says, all right, let's have lunch. So Peter, he's done with his stone in a couple bites. He's like, oh, this, this stinks. And after that, Jesus tells him once again, Please carry a stone for me. Peter thinks, aha, I got it now. So he grabs a small boulder, puts it on his back, and off they go, following Jesus some more. Much later in the day, Jesus takes them to a river, and he tells them, throw your stones into the river. And Peter just looks at him dumbfounded. And Jesus sighs, And tells Peter, Peter, don't you remember? Who were you carrying the stone for? Peter is just like that older brother. They're not obeying God to get God, but to get God's stuff. When I first heard this parable explained that way and heard some of this, it struck me like a sledgehammer straight to my heart. Because I saw so much of the older brother in my life, everywhere I looked. And honestly, it felt paralyzing because it felt like there was no way of escape. I see it everywhere in my prayers and my attitude, my feelings. But that actually brings us to that final question of what will bring these brothers back? What brings them back home? And it's back to what I first mentioned at the very beginning What will bring them back? Nothing less than God's prodigal grace. God's lavish grace to sinners. His favor to people that do not deserve it is what will bring them back. And the father in this story illustrates that so well. Because remember, how does he respond to his sons? Does he disown them? Does he run them out of town? Each time the father goes to his children, he moves towards them in love and grace. When they don't deserve it, they deserve rightfully to be disowned. They should not be sons. But he goes out to them and he reaches out to them in grace and love. And we need to respond appropriately to this. And the right response is what I call Robust repentance. Robust repentance. And repentance, as I've mentioned before, in a different sermon, is simply to turn. You're turning away from something. Now, in the younger brother, we see him doing that when he comes home. Right? He leaves home, he goes to this other country, comes to his senses, and he turns back home. Repentance. And the younger brother captures for us that God's grace is totally free. His lavish grace is free. 
and that anyone can come. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can come freely to God. Anyone can come. There is no sin, nothing in your life that is too ugly or too gross that is a match for God's prodigal grace. Anyone can come. And that is great news. Now that repentance also has to go deeper, and we see that with the older brother. Because if the older brother is going to repent, if we think of repentance normally as simply turning from sin, well, in one sense, where are his sins? He hasn't broken any rules. But instead, what he needs to turn from is his self-righteousness. He needs to turn from the motivation he has for doing anything good. He's on a self-salvation project, and he needs to turn from that. If he doesn't, he will never enter the party. He will never celebrate with his father. The older brother captures for us that God's lavish grace is also costly. One of my pastors, when I was in Duluth, he put it this way. He said, God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. And what he means by that is, if I, for instance, borrow your phone or your laptop or something and I break it, you can forgive me. That'd be really nice of you. And then for me, the forgiveness is free. I didn't earn it or merit it. It's totally free. But for you, it costs you something. It costs you your phone or your laptop or something. And so that means that forgiveness always has a price. Someone has to pay. And so when the younger brother comes home and he's forgiven, who had to pay for him to come back into the family? Ultimately, the older brother would have to pay. And here's why. When the younger brother left, he took all of his inheritance. He took all of his stuff. And he wasted it, everything. And so remember, towards the end, when the father is talking with the older son, Remember, he tells him that everything I have is yours. And that is literally true. So now when the younger son comes back and is made a son again, he is made a rightful heir to the family estate, to the inheritance, to the property. But all that is left rightfully belongs to the older brother. So what that means is that for the younger son to come back, it's going to be at a cost to the older brother's inheritance. And that's one reason he's so grumpy, because he sees his brother come back, and he just sees his inheritance going down, down, down. He's just losing more and more of his stuff that he thinks should be his stuff. And so it costs the older brother. Forgiveness always has a cost. Now, for repentance to be complete, we don't just turn from sin and self-righteousness. We also turn to something. Specifically, we turn to someone. You'll remember that with this parable, Jesus also told, excuse me, two other parables before it. Two other parables, and that's important. So the first parable is a lost sheep. And in that parable, the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and goes after the lost sheep. In the parable of the lost coin, this woman loses a coin, and she leaves what she's doing to find the lost coin. 
And so if we're reading this whole chapter, for instance, we would read that, and we would expect that when we got to this parable, well, surely someone is going to leave, like the shepherd left and the woman left, to go find this lost son. And does anybody leave? No. Nobody left to go find him. Who should have left? Ultimately, the older brother should have left. The older brother should have went to find his younger brother and bring him back. Now, this next illustration might be lost on some of you if you don't watch TV, but there's a show called This Is Us. And in that show, the older brother, Jack, leaves his family to bring back his younger brother. His younger brother is drafted into the Vietnam War. Jack can't be drafted because he has a heart condition. But eventually, Jack has had enough. He has to leave. So he leaves, despite his heart condition, to find his brother and bring him back. And what we see in that story and in this is that should really make us long for the true older brother, the one who actually would leave to bring back that which is lost. And who is that true older brother? It's the one telling the story. It's Jesus himself. Jesus leaves heaven to bring back that which is lost. Sinners, you and me. For instance, in Luke chapter 19, Luke, the author of this parable, tells us specifically why Jesus left. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what? The lost. Jesus came to seek and save you and me, the lost. And when he came, there was a price to be paid. The cost of our forgiveness. What was that cost? For the wages of sin is death. The cost of our forgiveness is death. And so Jesus leaves heaven, he comes to earth, he goes to the cross, and he pays that price. Remember, in forgiveness, it's free for us. But someone has to pay. And Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Amen, Calvary. Let's pray. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us prodigal, amazing grace. Favor we do not deserve. We thank you for our true older brother who came to rescue us, to bring us who are lost to find us and bring us back home with you. We thank you that he paid the ultimate price to bring us home. God, would that grace change us? What he did, would that change us from the inside out? That we will go to you for you. To get you. That the good news of the gospel is that we get you. We get to be with you, God. And so would that change us? And would we know you more deeply and enjoy you more fully? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.